0: From the Natural Environment Research Council, this is the Planet Earth podcast
1: with a rather surprised Richard Hollingham. Oh my goodness, the roof's opening. So the light comes down those pipes there, and as you can see, it's then directed up through these telescopes up into the sky. All will become clear
0: shortly. Also this week, geoengineering. Can technology save us from climate change? And we hear from the government's chief scientific advisor. Plus, the joy of sea squirts and the inevitable dinosaur story. First, though, strange goings-on in a field in Wales. Here's our intrepid reporter. A soft, misty rain is falling on the green grass hillside of West Wales. It's a peaceful, albeit slightly wet, rural scene. But rather than sheep in the field in front of me, there is row upon row of what look like oversized television aerials. And I'm with David Hooper, you responsible. responsible for the, the site here, and also Geraint Vaughan, who's Director of Weather Research at the National Centre for Atmospheric Sciences. Now, David, this is the MST radar.
2: What does that stand for? MST stands for Mesosphere, Stratosphere and Troposphere, and that's the three lowest regions of the atmosphere. So the troposphere would be the bit everybody's familiar with. That's from the ground level up to about 10 kilometres. That's where we see all the weather. Between about 10 and 50 kilometres, we get the stratosphere, which is the middle part of the atmosphere. It's very stable. That's where you get the ozone. And then above that, we have the mesosphere, which goes between about 50 and 90 kilometres. So you can say the mesopause is the top of the mesosphere, is pretty much the top of the atmosphere as far as we're concerned. This radar is actually also called a wind profiling radar, and it does literally what it says. It measures the winds. And it measures it principally, we run in what we call the ST mode. So that means between about 2 and 20 kilometres above the ground. So we're seeing most of the troposphere and the lower part of the stratosphere. Now you say it's a radar. It's not a radar dish. I mean, how many of these aerials are there in in this field? There's actually 400 aerials. 400? Yeah. And am I using the right... Is aerial? Is that the right phrase? we, We use... Yeah, we call this an antenna array. So we're basically looking at the sky with all these antennas The reason it looks like this and it's not a steerable dish is that we steer it electronically. This is about 100 metres by 100 metres. You couldn't really very feasibly steer that, so we change the signal to different parts of this array and then we can effectively steer away and measure our winds.
0: Now, we can't get any closer to them because... The pulse from this appears to interfere with the recording equipment I've got here. But if you look at one of these, it's whereas a a TV aerial would be horizontal, these are vertical with these horizontal spines, if you like, sticking out from these posts... What is it
2: doing? What is each one of these doing? It's sending out a a radio signal. That's correct. Another term for this type of radar is a clear air radar, and that doesn't mean that we can only see when there's clear sky. What it means is, as opposed to a meteorological radar, which is looking for raindrops, we're actually looking effectively just at the air, and what we're actually getting is scattering from refractive index, and that's basically the same phenomenon that causes starlight to twinkle at night-time. You get turbulent mixing in the atmosphere stirs up the atmosphere and causes these small changes in refractive index, and that causes the scattering. So that's what we're seeing. On top of that, we're also seeing the Doppler shift. Now, that's the really important thing for measuring the wind. As the air is moving towards us, we actually see a slight increase in the return frequency. If it moves away from us, we see a slight decrease. So in that way, we're unique, that we're measuring the full three-dimensional wind vector.
0: Well, if we're talking about turbulence, Garrett you study Turbulence, And I think a lot of us associate turbulence with that horrible, bumping, lurching feeling in an aircraft. Is that what we mean? Is it Air moving in these what, unpredictable ways?
1: Yes, that's right. Turbulence is basically when the even flow of the air breaks down and you get these vortices and you get rapid upward and downward motions which throw your aircraft around if you're sitting in the aircraft. But turbulence is also very fundamentally important for the atmosphere. It's, it's not just something that affects aircraft. In the lower part of the atmosphere, turbulence is the way that uh, heat and humidity and momentum is transferred from the surface of the Earth into the atmosphere. And the project that we were doing recently was looking at that kind of turbulence. Because there is this relationship between turbulence and
0: weather, and if you don't understand turbulence, you can't accurately predict the weather?
1: Well, in, yes, uh, the transfer of heat and, and m- moisture and so on from the surface into the atmosphere is absolutely fundamental, and without that, you, without getting that right, you're not going to get the weather forecast right.
0: You've got behind us one of the other instruments you were using, and, well, I can't tell this is particularly high-tech from the outside, it's an old shipping container well, with a, a, a sort of makeshift, inside, <laughs> makeshift roof on the top, let's go and have a look inside.
1: Yeah, let's go and have a look inside, OK, so... We use these shipping containers because they're fairly easy to cut holes in and put bits of roof on. Um, but hang on now, let me try and get this door open. Here we go. So, if you'd so, coming, inside. Please, so inside here, what we have, we have two rooms. In this room we have two powerful lasers. Now these lasers generate for us a variety of inf- uh, ultraviolet wavelengths. We use ultraviolet because it, it's much more eye-safe than the visible radiation, so you can't see the output from these lasers. But with them we can detect things like ozone in the atmosphere, water vapour in the atmosphere, we can measure temperature, we can measure the amount of aerosol, small particles in the atmosphere. And these complement the radar. The radar measures the way the air is moving. These things measure the sort of properties of the air, and putting those together is is, is the main purpose of this kind of research here. So you're firing these lasers, what, vertically upwards? Yes, well, if you, if you come into... The, I'll show you here. What you can see, you can see these beams are now being passed through those pipes at the back there, Okay, and they're going through into this other room here. So if we go to this other going room... through the doorway. And, uh, this is all inside a container. What do you see Yes. So I'll just put the door back slightly. Oops. There
0: you go. Oh, my goodness, the roof's opening.
1: Right, so there's... Give you a bit, bit of light... So the light comes down those pipes there, and as you can see, it's then directed up through these telescopes up into the sky. You can see mirrors here that are about a metre in diameter, the astronomical telescopes, basically. And we collect some of the light that comes back. So some of the ultraviolet light we're firing up into the atmosphere gets collected by these telescopes, and then it's directed into these optical detection units, and we can measure it. And by putting all that information together, that's how we detect profiles. I have to say, the inside of this is completely at odds to the outside,
0: this shabby looking container. Then inside you've got all this high-tech equipment. But essentially the system is quite simple, that you're bouncing a laser off the atmosphere and
1: measuring what you get back. Essentially, yes. It's a rather more complicated business in practice, but that's essentially what it is.
0: Back outside and the rain has stopped. Quite an impressive... Selection of technology here to probe the atmosphere to look through this thick
1: cloud above us. What, why is this so important? Well, one of the things that we need to get a better handle of, for example, is extremes of weather. Everyone talks about extremes of weather these days. It's actually very difficult to observe extremes of weather, and this radar does it very well because it's on all the time. So the weather comes to it, if you like, and, and this is we can use techniques like aircraft to go and look out for the weather we, we want to look at, or we can use this technique where we sit here and wait for the weather to come to us. And we need both in order to improve our, our understanding of the weather. So that's, that's I think, is the main strength of this technique, is that it can be left on all the time, and that gives us a complete data set then. Geraint Vaughan and David Hooper
0: at the Mesosphere, Stratosphere, Troposphere, that's the MST, radar array near Aberystwyth. This is the Planet Earth podcast and I've come to the University of East Anglia in Norwich, in the rain to talk geoengineering. This is the idea that by using technology you can intervene in the Earth's climate system to directly tackle global warming. The Natural Environment Research Council is carrying out a public dialogue on geoengineering to decide how research should be pursued. And with me under the trees are Tim Lenton, Professor of Earth Systems Science at the University here and Nem Vaughan, Tyndall Centre Research Fellow who has the best coat and a hat now nem first of all what what is geoengineering
3: geoengineering is a term used to describe a group of ideas that are uh, trying to approach the problem of global warming by trying to cool the planet slightly either by reflecting away some sunlight or by trying to capture directly out of the atmosphere some of the carbon dioxide and store it away for a long time
4: okay tim give us an, an example so, for sunlight reflection, a possibility is to mimic large volcanic eruptions and put tiny particles, possibly of sulfate aerosol, up in the stratosphere to scatter sunlight back to space. Or for carbon dioxide removal, we might let plants take the carbon out of the air forest, but then trap it in the form of charcoal, now referred to as biochar, that we put back in the soil. So give me some practical examples, Nem. How would this work in reality,
0: if it ever became reality?
3: These ideas about capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, a lot of them are already actually being quite well thought about. And so they would work because they would help to complement our efforts to reduce our CO2 emissions, helping to kind of speed up the removal of the CO2. The ideas about reflecting sunlight away are a little bit more contentious in some areas because what you're doing is you're not dealing with the problem, you're not dealing with the excess of CO2 in the atmosphere, you're just dealing with one of the symptoms, which is the increased uh, temperature. And so people think that maybe they might need to be used to maybe buy us some time or might need to be used if we reach a point maybe a tipping point in the climate system is is the kind of perspective people are looking at those reflecting sunlight ideas away from so
0: in terms of a machine
4: or or something that absorbs carbon dioxide how would it work what would it do If you try to do it chemically, uh, you use a solution perhaps of sodium hydroxide and you have to either let the the natural wind blow or actively suck the ambient air across this solution, which will get the CO2 into solution. Then you've got to do a little bit more chemical engineering to try and siphon it off, probably as liquid form, and then it's a bit like what's called conventional carbon capture and storage. You, You inject the liquid CO2 into deep geological reserves and try to ensure that it stays there. And what about reflecting
0: the heat? Are we talking satellites with mirrors or something?
3: The ideas, there are two kind of groups of ideas that get a bit more attention, which is the idea that Tim's already suggested, which is um, putting these particles in our stratosphere, building on the idea of large volcanic eruptions we experienced already. One of the other ideas by a group, particular proponents from the University of Edinburgh, Stephen Salter, is um, to try to increase the reflectivity of our clouds, try to make some of the clouds over the oceans brighter, so they reflect more of the sunlight back to space. That's another group of ideas, and that would be done by spraying up seawater to act as cloud condensation nuclei to make the clouds brighter.
0: Tim, is there a danger with this that we start thinking, well, if all this is possible and we've got a technical fix, we don't have to worry so much about global warming?
4: Yes, people refer to that as the moral hazard here, but we've done our work being quite explicit that we think the first thing society should do is reduce their emissions of greenhouse gases. But uh, we, we still, some of us as climate scientists, think that we may experience dangerous climate change even if we mitigate strongly and therefore we may need to do more and a logical next step at least is to actively remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then perhaps have some of these sunlight reflections options in our back pocket as a kind of emergency insurance policy. And this ties in with what the Royal Society report published what late last year said. Yes, we submitted our our work to that report, and I I think we're broadly in agreement. What's important for listeners to realise is that something like the well-known Stern review on climate change implicit in their scenarios to try to keep global warming under two degrees and stabilize co2 at around 450 parts per million in the atmosphere implicit in that is the idea that we'll be in a world of negative emissions or rather carbon dioxide removal in the latter part of this century so it's there already and we really i believe should be developing the technologies to achieve that
3: Definitely the carbon dioxide removal is something, as Tim said, is already in already part of the envisaged future for out to about 2100 because you're directly acting on the, the cause of the problem. The Reflecting the sunlight away is definitely something you'd want to know about. You want to do the research on so that you know the scope, you know what the side effects are likely to be, to at least be to think about it. But none of those two things remove the need to reduce your CO2 emissions. You st- we still need to reduce our CO2 emissions because that makes the problem of this excess of CO2 in the atmosphere smaller in the first place.
4: And my personal view is that some of the possible dangers of large-scale deployment of reflecting sunlight back to space, in particular we know that it would weaken the water cycle and could reduce water availability in some vulnerable regions of the world like the Sahel and India, those caveats are strong enough, those risks are strong enough for us to... to be very very cautious about the wisdom of doing those things i think a society will have to decide and weigh up those risks but as scientists I, i'm not convinced that the, the the risks and dangers of doing sunlight reflection i think they might outweigh the benefits
0: tim Nem Vaughan, thank you both very much tim you look so cold go back inside <laughs> Now some other news from the natural world. The government's chief scientific advisor has been talking about the recent climate change controversies involving the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. In an interview for the Natural Environment Research Council, John Beddington told Sue
5: Nelson that we shouldn't get distracted from the urgent action that's required there is absolutely no doubt climate change is happening, that the evidence indicates that, if anything, it is happening faster than the original uh, predictions that the IPCC made in their last report that the evidence which was reviewed in March 2009 by a large group of scientists working in Copenhagen, all of that pointed to saying not only is climate change happening, but that it's happening faster than even some of the more pessimistic predictions that came out of the IPCC. So, no, I would not change my views whatsoever.
3: How can scientists convince the sceptics? Even among scientists themselves, there was a, a survey in 2009 65% of scientists said they thought that the IPCC report, they'd got it bang on, it was right. 17% of scientists thought they'd underestimated it. 18% thought they'd overestimated it.
5: This points exactly to the to the issue that we have got to recognise that there is fundamental uncertainty in climate projections but i think in terms of the views of scientists we've got to distinguish between what i would call proper skeptics and those who are uh, who are producing uh, arguments which actually have no credibility it is proper to be sceptical about the level of uncertainty, about pr- particular aspects of physical processes, about data sets where there are gaps in those data sets and so on. That's a proper degree of scepticism, and indeed that's, that scepticism is what the whole business about doing science is about. Science grows by getting, looking in an appropriate way at critical comment on theories and uh, various developments. What is not credible is where fundamental laws of physics are challenged or that, in fact, the criticism that is generated is a criticism that, when you come to look at it, is not appropriate. It's not using scientific method. It's actually more opinion or polemic. And I would distinguish, very importantly, between scepticism, which is proper in, a, in scientific debate and in debates involving engineering, but improper when, in fact, one is just using uh, scientific facts, and manipulating them to generate an opinion.
0: John Beddington, and there's a link to the full interview on the Planet Earth online website. Let's get to that dinosaur story now. And a British-Chinese team of paleontologists has discovered that dinosaurs had coloured feathers. By looking at immaculately preserved proteins in fossilised dinosaur remains, they found that a dinosaur called Cinosauropteryx had ginger and white stripy feathers on its tail, while another dinosaur called Confuciosaurus, an early type of bird, had patches of red, black and white feathers. The scientists think that because these feathers are on the dinosaur's tails, they probably evolved first for display and only later became useful for insulation and flight. This adds further weight to the idea that birds evolved from dinosaurs. If you've ever seen a picture of a blobfish, you'll understand why it's been dubbed the world's ugliest animal. But at least it attracts sympathy for being faced with extinction. The carpet sea squirt has no such redeeming qualities. Not only is it ugly, it's also an invasive species that poses a serious threat to Britain's marine life. The creature comes from Japan and was first found in the UK at Hollyhead Harbour in North Wales in 2008. But now the critter has been discovered in Scotland. The Scottish scientist who spotted the squirt thinks it may have hitchhiked on the hulls of leisure boats from Wales or from Ireland, where it's also well established. Although it could spread rapidly in Scotland, scientists say it's not too late to stop it. There's a link to the non-invasive species website on our website, that's planetearth.nerc.ac.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook and tweet us on Twitter. I'm Richard Hollingham and this has been the Planet Earth Podcast.